It is Tuesday, December 26, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, we reach back to August for a few of our favorites from this year, including a camp in Bentonville for children of any and all faiths. So we call these exploring or wonder sessions. They have conversation, but we're not here to teach. We're not here to convert. Plus, digging into forgotten Washington County history. Because you go, what are you talking about, forgotten Fayetteville? Everybody knows Collier's Drugstore, right? They've been here forever. Well, what I'm saying is, you don't know probably about the original Mel Collier from Prairie Grove. And running as a way to convey discussions about inclusion and sustainability. Write a no-nonsense guide for athletes on how they can get involved in climate and kind of like make the case that personal health, connection with community is intrinsically and necessarily tied to climate action. First, the hour's news. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season at Walton Arts Center Saturday, January 20th with The Great Unknown, performing the world premiere of Aldo Lopez Gavilan's Oceans to Cross, featuring nationally acclaimed pianist Laura Downs. The evening's program will also include Samuel Barber's Symphony No. 1 and William Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony. Tickets and more at sonamusic.org. KUAF is supported by Penguinette's Barbecue, open for curbside pickup seven days a week at Mission and Crossover in Fayetteville, and open seven days a week with dine-in, patio, and curbside pickup at the historic B&B location. PenguinEds.com for menus. This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, December 26th, 2023. Happy Boxing Day. I'm Kyle Kellams. We're drifting back to August on this hour for three of our favorite pieces that aired that month. We'll visit again an interfaith camp in Bentonville that was the first of its kind in our region. We'll also meet again Fayetteville native Zoe Rome, now a Colorado resident. She's a writer and editor with Outside, and this year wrote the book Becoming a Sustainable Runner, A Guide to Running for Life, Community, and Planet. And just ahead, J.B. Hogan, a writer and historian, named his latest book Forgotten Fayetteville and Washington County. This is Ozarks at Large. If you've lived in Fayetteville for just a small amount of time, a long amount of time, or maybe you've just known of Fayetteville, you probably don't know all of its history. I'm not saying J.B. Hogan knows all of its history, but he knows more than you and me. J.B. Hogan is with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. You're a novelist. You're a historian. Do I call you? You're a poet as well. I'm a poet too, yes. I'm doing a lot of poetry right now, as a matter of fact. Well, we're here to talk more about your historian hat. Right. Uh, the book, Forgotten Fayetteville and Washington County, is going to be out very soon? Uh, we're hoping for August 19th, which okay. is the Washington County Historical Society Ice Cream Social. But I think <laughs> it's a really tight thing right now. But it is completed as far as your Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, since I haven't seen it, you haven't gone to the galleys yet and that sort of thing. So it's not, it's not ready to order. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, well, let's talk about... How you determined what is Forgotten Fayetteville in Washington County? Yeah, so actually, since you and I have talked about this a lot in the past, this is all a result of my research on the baseball book, My uh, Angels in the Ozarks. Uh, These were all offshoot things. I just kept seeing and discovering different stories. And what I'm saying is that most of these stories are about things, people, events, 
that have probably completely drifted out of the communal mind. And so that was what I was focusing on. And I also want to point out on this one, it's, it's, it's kind of the definition of eclectic. I mean, it has no rhyme or reason. It's just whatever story struck me, I did it. <laughs> well, you know, I'm looking at the table of contents, and there are some that I think, okay, I'm interested in that because I know a little bit about that, like the history of Collier Drugstore. It's been around right. for more than 100 years. Exactly, and, and that's, a, that's a great one to start with because you go, what are you talking about, Forgotten Fayetteville? Everybody knows Collier's Drugstore, right? They've been here forever. Well, what I'm saying is you don't know probably about the original Mel Collier from Prairie Grove who came to Fayetteville in like 1917, I believe, invested in the Red Cross Drugstore up on the square, and look at what we have today. You know, a company that's got you know, stores all over northwest Arkansas. Did you say the Red Cross? Yeah, Red Cross Drugstore is on the north side of the, of the uh, square. It was the second building in from the east on the north side, right next to the Boston store for people that are here for a long time, in between the Boston store and McElroy Bank. Okay. If for people to try to have that for a reference. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, Collier Drugstore, as you mentioned, has been here more than 100 years. You walk by it and... And you go, okay, I think I know where I can begin to find some history of that. Carl Collier right. has been working there for some time. Who is Mel's? Okay, I went – the person I used or, or helped me the most there was young Mel, I call him. Okay. Young Mel Collier. Who is the great-grandson? I think he would be the great-grandson of the, of the original Mel. But what about some of these others? You said that while you were researching Angels in the Ozarks, the baseball book, you found some of these others. Where would you find them? Uh, in the newspaper, I was researching the new, the uh, Fayetteville Daily Democrat slash Northwest Arkansas Times, and they would just be there, you know, some horrible story or something like the asphyxiation story we, <laughs> that's on there in 1936, stuff like, well, what in the world? This horrible, you know, tragedy and scandal that happened. And uh, so, so I, my eyes, sometimes you, you focus on crime stories sometimes, mm-hmm. but not always. There's other stories as well, but... The very first one I'll, I'll mention, the very first story I wrote, wait, let me, let me level set this. What we have here is we have 18 historical essays, articles. They're the first 18 articles I wrote for the Flashback, the Journal of the Washington County Historical Society. Mm-hmm. And what I did is I put them in chronological order I rather see. than the order I wrote them. The very first one I did was the uh, death of uh, black patrolman Lem McPherson in April of 1928. And I was so surprised to find out we had a black patrolman in 1928, that I had to pursue that, and that was the first one. Since that time, I found out there was actually a patrolman before him. Oh. I hired in 1923 a man named Sid Jackson. So, you, you mentioned the asphyxiation, but the title in the table of contents is Cabin Orgy Deaths. Yeah, yeah. So that's a little bit more sensational. It What's is, happening It is here? definitely sensational. Yeah. Uh, okay, it was so... And I'm don't gonna, give away too much. We want to yeah, read about it. But yeah, yeah, sure. But uh, there was some local folks here. They were drinking. This is like, at the, I think it was 36. The, we're still in a kind of funny place with alcohol after, you know, prohibition's gone, but the state and that city. Anyway, so what's scandalous about it is that the, the people were drinking at a bar, which was kind of off limits sort of in a way. Mm-hmm. And they included like a married woman. A young woman who is just barely of age, that kind of thing. And they were drinking, which was a big deal. And they were partying. Mm-hmm. And they went to the Uncle John's tourist camp up here on North College. And they went in there and partied all night. And it was cold winter, so, uh, December 7th, I think, of 36. And the windows were sealed tight. And they were asphyxiated by the gas stove. All of them died. 
Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, it's a horrendous story, horrendous story. But it just leaped out at me. Now, one thing about talking with a historian who spent a lot of time researching a particular topic or place or subject is that you sometimes throw these things out like the rest of us know. Oh. You said Uncle John's Tourist <laughs> Camp? I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, in the late 20s, uh, when the automobiles started getting really big all over, mm-hmm. uh, the number of camps, they call auto camps, started opening up. And they were wonderful, neat little places. I stayed in one up in Maine. It's just like that. And they just had little tiny cabins around. Oh. City Park had one. We had The City Park Company had one down in the part that goes by the tennis courts. There was a series of little cabins, and people would drive in. They'd stay in a little cabin. I'm glad you brought up Wilson Park because you have a chapter about Wilson Park in yeah. here as well. There is a wonderful photograph in the restaurant Feed and Folly that shows a Wilson Park from a long time ago when there was a pond. Yes. And and it's taken from below the pond. You see Old Main yes. rising above it. And if you haven't lived in Fayetteville in the past— You, you might not know what that is. And, and my wife, Laura, and I were looking at it, trying to figure out what was this vantage point. But it was Wilson Park when it had, a, like, a lake. Well, actually, I've walked up to that exact spot so I get that perspective. It's slightly up prospect up yeah. the hill and looking back. And that, of course, is Trent's Pond. A.L. Trent uh, was had privately owned that park, but he, he allowed the public to use it. He's, I think I might have mentioned that to you before. He's one of my favorite characters in our history. Very civic-minded to do something like that. But it was called Trent's Pond. And he filled it with that spring water there. The, what's now the ball field, that's Trent's Pond. Okay. And that's exactly what it was. And they had a little boating and swimming and stuff. And you can imagine how cold that water probably was. Boating and swimming. So it was big. I well, mean, it was big. The, the, whole, the whole ball field, basically. Okay. Is it, I mean, the, the ball field, was that was leveled in the early 50s to make the ball field, which was the old Trent's Pond area. So it was Trent's Pond, but we call it Wilson Park. Yeah, Wilson Park. It's Wilson Park because Charles Morrow Wilson sold the last big chunk of land to the west, to the city in 1945. And he wanted it named after his mother, mm-hmm. Maddie Morrow Wilson. That's actually its official name. And the the whole chunk of the Wilson Park that's from like the tennis courts all the way over to Wilson Avenue, right? We used to be called Wilson's Pasture, and that's the part that Charles Morrow Wilson sold to the city. It uh, went made them, the park went from like five and seven eighths to sixteen and seven eighths size, a huge amount of land. Hmm. You're a historian who has written about both things that you're trying to find, and it sounds like some of these things found you. Which is more fun? Uh, that is a really good question. I think, well, the ones that find you, they're almost organic. They just mm-hmm. kind of appear. I kind of like finding them sometimes. Like, for example, I found the, the Lynn McPherson story. I wasn't looking for it. I was looking to, for when W.S. Campbell's book came out on, you know, the 100 Years of Fayetteville during the centennial. Mm-hmm. And then there it was. So that's almost both things at one time, in a sense. I wasn't looking for the story, but it was there. I was looking for a different story. And so then it you went looking, yeah. It. Yeah, and then I, then I just went off that way. Because you might remember a, a few years ago for that Ollie here in town, I taught a class called uh, Murder and Mayhem, the Dark Side of Fayetteville History. Uh-huh. And so I had all, it's nothing but that stuff. You also have a chapter about Fayetteville's old movie houses. Oh. Do we know when the first movie house was here? Uh, sort of. It was kind of a, at first they had, uh, I'm forgetting the name now, the uh, air domes. They were just, it was like a building, no roof, walls, and just a, th- you know, a screen in the back, and you paid a nickel or something to come in and watch the movies. The first real set-down theater was the Lyric, and it was originally an air dome down in Dixon Street. Then it moved in the center of North Block just off the square, 
Mm-hmm. And then the, the white building used to be the Ozark Cleaners. It's now painted white. There used to be yellow brick. Right. That's where the first real set-down theater was, the Lyric, right there. Beautiful little theater. Uh, do we? How much about the interior do we know? Was it theater seating? Was it? You, could you hear the projector? Well, I think my guess is it was just kind of chairs. Right. right. <laughs> I don't. I don't think they're probably the first one that would have seating like that would be. I'm trying to remember the dates on these guys now. Probably the Ozark, mm-hmm. which of course wasn't a movie theater to begin with, but right. it was later. But it would have had real nice seats right away. Of course, the palace, when it was built, was built with seats. I was thinking of the Royal, which was on the south side. That was the cowboy movie, the kid movie. When I was a kid. And I'm just going to say, that was, you talk about fun. And I loved doing that one. I loved looking up the old movies. And there were so many strange movie theaters that came and went. The Princess, the whatever. One was called the Bijou Dream Theater, which I thought was some weird name. Turned out it was a, a, a chain. A chain Bijou, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I just love that. You know, the uh, uh, Frank Barr was the first guy, one of the, the first big guy. E.C. Robertson had a little theater on the east side called the Victory. And then uh, uh, Mr. Sonneman, W.S. Sonneman, came to town in 1925, bought the Royal from the Bud Brothers on that side, on the south side. And then he built the palace where the Victory was, which was, that was my favorite theater, the palace. Sometimes mention these names like you knew them. Oh, yeah. You must feel like in some ways I you do. know them. There's certain ones I do feel like I've, I've known them. I've read so much stuff about Mr. <laughs> Sonneman, for example. And he owned all the theaters at one time in town, all of them. He built the York and he owned the Ozark, the Palace, and the Royal all at one time. Mm. He had everything. And uh, But one of the guys I mentioned before, uh, A.L. Trent's one of the guys I feel like I know really well. I feel like Frank Barr as well because he had a kid's orchestra, Frank Barr, that played around town. And... Uh, Another guy that I feel like I knew was uh, uh, A.F. Wolf, who built the admin building. He had a real interesting life and kind of a sad life. He died real young. Made a fortune and then died real young. But he built the admin building. He built the wonderful Arkansas building on Mount North, which is long gone. But yeah. he did. So there's certain, there's certain people, certain historians, I feel like. Uh, the first, I consider James H. Van Hoos to be the first reliable historian, and I really feel connected to him. I don't want you to give away the story, but there oh, is no. a, 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 a chapter titled How a 1939 Car Wreck Near West Fork yeah. Changed American History. That's a bold it's title. It's a big one, isn't it? That's big time. Yeah. <laughs> what that's talking about is uh, the University of Arkansas President uh, John C. Futrell, mm-hmm. longest serving, I believe, 20 years, 30 years, something like that. He was coming back from Little Rock in September 1939 and was killed in a car wreck down by West Fork. Well, in the process of getting the new president— there was a lot of local power, including ah. Roberta Fulbright, who had who had backed Carl Bailey for governor, who was the governor, and her son J. W. Fulbright, a a temporary junior professor, was elevated to president. Of the, yeah, young man at the time. Very right? young man. He was elevated to president of the University of Arkansas over Dean Waterman, head of the law school, and other really big time, big time professors, and. But he turned out to be really popular. He was very popular, so we, you can't say anything about that. But it was an amazing power mm-hmm. thing to me. And so, and then J.W. becomes, because of the way Arkansas, in those days, all the way through the 60s, our people were elected basically perpetually. He became one of the most powerful men in the history of the United States. And an absolute, you know, he's the first guy to turn, first public office, public official to turn against the Vietnam War, so he was the absolute darling of the left mm-hmm. in the 70s. 
And so, so you see what I mean? That's what I meant by change the course of American history. Are there, were there any little facts that you came up with and you just haven't been able to flesh them out yet? Like, oh, this is mentioned, but I can't. Well, one of the things I have trouble with is the follow-on to a story. Mm. For example, in the Lim McPherson story, the man that was charged and tried and convicted of killing him, Everett Williams, I don't know whatever happened to Everett Williams. Uh, he mm. went to the state pen, and and one time I saw an obituary that, of a man named Everett Williams who looked like the right time, but, but I don't have any idea. So there's things like that. Yeah, there's lots of that. We know that there was a Bonnie and Clyde connection to Fayetteville, a robbery of a grocery store. Um, yeah. Pretty Boy Floyd or any of those folks ever in Washington County? Yeah, well, they were in Washington County and, I, and in Benton County. I, I, I told uh, Nate Custer, remember him? I had mm-hmm. an interview with him one time. I have a family member, everybody probably does, <laughs> who was at, the, I think it was in Benton County at a, at a bank when Pretty Boy Floyd robbed it, and he said he came out and gave money to people. Huh. Well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but that's why nobody would rat on these guys right. when the banks were failing and taking their farms and stuff. And then you get this guy goes in there, so I'll just take some of it back. And if he, if he gave you two bucks in 1930, you'd probably think of him as a hero forever. <laughs> but wait, there's more forgotten more forgotten Fayetteville in Washington County is going to come out this oh, year too? Thank you. No, it's going to be okay. two years from now. Oh, two and years. And thank you for bringing that up. Uh, for that one, I, w- I wanted to do more, and so I enlisted the aid of our friend, Susan Park Spencer from Prairie Grove. Former KUAF employee. Exactly, and yeah. a terrific local historian yes. herself. And she and I had worked on some projects together. And what we wanted to do, and we did, it's, al- it's already almost done. We wanted more women's history, mm-hmm. more out-in-the-county history, more black history, more Native American history. Uh-huh. And so it's... You know, mine was just like an eclectic grab. I mean, just whatever story grabbed me. But this one, we wanted to get that. We wanted to broaden that out. And I think I'm hoping people will like this one. And I think if they like this one, they're going to like that one as much or more because there's lots of great stuff. And one of the things that's interesting to me is we'd work together. I, I would ask if when it comes out, see if you can tell other than the topic which articles she wrote and which oh, I wrote. Interesting. I think I was so surprised. I feel like our writing style, whatever reason, they're the same kind of writing style. And I was really pleased with that because I don't think you'll get any jarring kind of thing. Right. Like this I, chapter is well, wildly I, I'll different. I'll give you an example from the F- Forgotten Fable. I finished the book on the early history of Drake Field. Mm-hmm. My uh, late brother-in-law, Kirby Essis, who's yeah. actually on another article about him too, he did all that preliminary work. And I finished it for him after he passed. That was so hard because I called him Pops. Pops and I, our writing styles could not possibly be different, more different. It was really hard. It took me the ages to try to blend that in there. But with Susan, it was just like really right. seamless, basically. Do you ever think that there may be someone in 2081 going for Fayetteville history and pulling this book and like, well, thank you, J.V. Hogan, for writing about this? I hope that that's true because this is something I tell my friend Tony Wapple all the time about his books. Yeah. You know Tony well. Yeah. I tell him all the time, 100 years from now, people are going to use your books, and hopefully they will see mine too, the same way that we see W.S. Campbell's book or Kent Brown's wonderful illustrated history of Fayetteville, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yes, it is the hope, and we hope that we do not – you know, introduce any errors into the historical record and correct them sometimes if we can, which happens from time to time. We, we'll find things that were wrong and we correct it. 
I appreciate it. Jerry, thanks so much for coming Thank by. you, Kyle, very much. This month's Short Talks from the Hill features Mervyn Jabaraj. As director of the Center for Business and Economic Research in the Sam Walton College of Business, Jabaraj leads a team of researchers who provide applied economic and business research to federal, state, and local government and to businesses in Arkansas. In the podcast, Jabaraj discusses inflation, consumer sentiment, and economic growth in northwest Arkansas. The center recently released the Northwest Arkansas Region Report, an analysis of the Northwest Arkansas economy. Jeparaj explained what goes into the making of this report. When we compared ourselves to the first set, uh, we were a lot better. So we let's like make this a little harder and try regional comparisons that are bigger than us. Think of Tulsa or Kansas City or Omaha, which is a little further away than those two uh, metro regions. But they're larger metro areas, have a lot more people, a lot more businesses and so on. So we wanted to compare ourselves to the larger metro areas that were near us. Again, we were outperforming them, you know, not in terms of size, but in terms of growth. You can listen to Jebaraj wherever you get your podcasts or by going to arkansasresearch.uark.edu, the home of research and economic development news at the University of Arkansas. This is Ozarks at Large. We're acting like it's August today. Warmer weather. Thought the Razorback football team might go, I don't know, 9-4. and four. Well, anyway, we're hearing some of our favorite pieces that aired on Ozarks at Large this past August. Zoe Rome is a writer and editor for Outside, focused on trail running and the environment. And though she's based in Colorado, she got her start running the trails of the Ozarks in her hometown of Fayetteville. Now, she's co-author of the new book, Becoming a Sustainable Runner, a guide to running for life, community, and planet. This August, she spoke with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth over the phone. And just really wanted to kind of write a no-nonsense guide for athletes on how they can get involved in climate and kind of like make the case that personal health, connection with community is intrinsically and necessarily tied to climate action. And that, you know, there's no real point in only trying to self-optimize your own health if you're not also engaged in sort of community care and planet care as well. Yeah, well, it's interesting because, you know, there's so many books I feel like out there that are about running, uh, but not that many that that I feel like are on this topic specifically or, or about, you know, collective action and about sustainability. Was there a moment that forced you to think, okay, I want to write about this. I want this to be the topic. Yeah, I think, you know, I've always been kind of frustrated by the ways that I've been pigeonholed into needing to cover it really explicitly through the framework of running, meaning like looking for ways that feel relevant to the sport, but don't actually have like a super helpful impact, like being told to buy shoes that have like some amount of recycled sort of like content in them or recycle gel wrappers or you know, like these sort of just like really narrow solutions that don't have the impact that we really need. (laughs) I really wanted to sort of broaden the framework, but use running as that entry point for people say like, hey, we both love clean air, clean water, available sidewalks and trails. Let's start with what we have in common. And then can I challenge you to maybe take a broader perspective and push you towards collective and political action that will have broader impacts than just recycling, you know, your your gel wrappers after a marathon. And can I ask, so how did you kind of get involved in running? How was how did that become something that you became interested or passionate about? Yeah, well, I mean, partially, you know, growing up in Fayetteville, track capital of the mm-hmm. world, going to Razorback track meets, right? Like, and growing up kind of like 
in the backyard of one of the most win or of the most winning cross country team of all time. And I think I started really running more seriously in, in college when I was working at a local running store um, and started competing at trail and ultra marathons when I lived in Fayetteville, just because we had kind of like a burgeoning ultra running scene. And I got really, really into that. And so I think that, you know, it just it went from there and I started running 50Ks, then 50 milers, and now I kind of specialize in the 50 mile to 100 mile sort of discipline. Yeah, well, in having done that for so long, how has your relationship to the environment and to sustainability kind of evolved as you've gotten more into running? You've hit these other milestones. Last year, I was actually diagnosed with asthma for the first time, and that has kind of made me even more acutely aware of living in Colorado, sort of the air quality concerns that I never experienced growing up in Arkansas. Like, okay, yeah, this explains why my lungs get so irritated when it's when it's hazy out during wildfire season. Um, and I think that that was something that kind of like helped shift for me. It, it made the political personal in a way that really hit home for Mm -hmm. me. But I'll say another thing that's really, really changed is that I used to be a much more like private runner. I ran primarily alone. I ran primarily for myself. And I think the biggest shift I've noticed in my own running career is trying to use running as a place of community building and as sort of a way to bring more people into a social justice and an environmental justice conversation that they haven't always seen themselves included in. I think particularly like growing up in Arkansas, sport is a way that we connect with each other. It's a way that we build communities and that we communicate with each other. And I wanted to sort of use that framework to recenter the conversation and bring folks in who haven't always seen their needs taken seriously by the environmental movement. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to talk about that. It's interesting, the name of the book, because it's about automatically you think sustainability and a sustainable environment and climate action but also about integrating running into your life and, and being a lifelong runner and, and put it, making that part of your community. If you could talk just about how you go about making running, making these running groups more inclusive and more welcoming to people. Yeah, I think something that, you know, I actually was just reading this sort of data set that was released just a couple weeks ago by the Running Industry Diversity Coalition, where they surveyed thousands of trail runners, and they found that trail runners who identified as white use the word inclusive to describe the trail running community Mm -hmm. a lot. Runners of color do not use that word, and they found the community not inclusive. And I think that is so, so telling that like maybe as a white member of the community, our self-perception of this community doesn't align with other people's lived experiences. And we need to take really seriously those concerns and say like, okay, who am I leaving out when I picture this community? And who do I need to be more intentional in identifying like what barriers prevent folks from engaging in this space? And I think again, that this becomes kind of an area where I get frustrated with like leaving the conversation only at running. Oftentimes we hear like running is so inclusive, all you need is a pair of shoes. And that's just not true. You also need a place to run where you feel safe, where the air is clean, where you have infrastructure that facilitates like bodily safety, where you don't feel that you might be a victim of gender based violence or of people discriminating based on how you perform your gender sexuality or what political contexts you're bringing to running. And I think that I'd be really and I am buoyed to see so much more conversation in the running space 
that takes those concerns seriously and saying like, if you're interested in building a truly inclusive running community, you have to really, really zoom out and identify what sort of like structural barriers are preventing people from participating in the sport, because it's oftentimes not something as simple as, oh, well, I don't have access to a pair of trail shoes. It's usually something much, much deeper that's tied up in these sort of like policy level solutions. Yeah. And when you were writing the book and sort of digging into some of these issues, were there any policies or or things that sort of struck you, uh, took you by surprise and were like, I never actually thought about that? Yeah, I think a big one for me, um, not I'm not a parent, but my co-author Tina is a parent. Mm -hmm. And there are so many ways that women in our world are forced to kind of bear the brunt of like familial labor we actually like really dug into some of the data that was available going into the pandemic. And I would love to do more of this research looking at like post-pandemic sort of data. But even before the pandemic, women on average have four fewer hours per week to dedicate towards fitness and hobbies than men do. And four hours a week of running is like a pretty solid amount of time to exercise. Like that's a lot of time that you could dedicate towards training for a marathon, a half marathon, 10K, 100 mile race, whatever it is you want to do. And in the trail running world, we see a really big discrepancy in how many um, folks who identify as women sign up for trail races, particularly longer events like the ones I'm passionate about versus men. And it would appear to me that that four hours has to account for a significant percentage of that. So we spent you know, time interviewing moms about how they balance things. And I think that, again, it kind of like hints at that our society is so much more comfortable, like finding the ways that like women can life hack their ways to better balance, (laughs) rather than going back and assessing on a policy level, where do our policies fail working parents? Um, And I think that that was one that again, just like as someone that has never performed the labor of parenthood myself, seeing how other women problem solve around that on an individual level really inspired me to push for like a broader scale sort of solution for all all folks. And I think that one thing that does come out in the book is we really did try to focus on solutions over like just pointing out problems. So we interviewed a lot of athletes and activists who are doing the work and kind of like are implementing really novel solutions at the at the community level. And so I think that that is something that folks will really benefit from from reading the book is that it is like a really sort of optimistic, positive, and solutions-oriented sort of work. Well, not to give away the book, but, you know, what are some of those solutions? Like, what are some action items that that people can take? You know, if they're daunted by some of these bigger issues, are there specific actions that someone could take right now to just be more conscious, more sustainable, a better runner? Yeah, I think one of the, you know, like, sort of, like, mindset shifts I would love to see folks... Um, take is to just re um, sort of reassess their relationship with consumption. I think, you know, we're all inundated with advertising day in and day out, pushing us to constantly to want more things, to buy more things. And we cannot continue to consume at the same rate we're consuming as a culture. Um, And we're all going to have to be comfortable reducing and reusing. And do you really need like another running shirt? Like can races and events like not, you know, just give you free samples that you're not going to use or like not, you know, hand you a t-shirt that you're never going to wear again. I don't want to like put too many additional things on folks plates. Although I do make, I do try to make the case for like, 
political action and organization, particularly on the local and regional level, as being a really potent place for change. Um, but also just like assessing sort of like how the running community interacts with consumption. I think we have sort of a dysregulated relationship with like this capitalist inclination for quarterly growth and increasingly needing more and more and more and these like kind of hacky sort of like product appeals that you need to buy like a new there's like a new gimmick all the time and i think we all need to get comfortable simply having less buying less reusing more sharing things i think that that can actually really bring us closer to our communities too like rather than just you know hitting the buy now button on amazon like getting on a Facebook group and seeing like what's available in your community. Like what can you swap with other people? How can you extend sort of the life cycle of everything you have now and then approach any sort of novel consumption with a lot more skepticism? What do you think it is about running that, I don't know, that so many people, when you spoke to them, said that it was such an important part of their life. It's something that you <laughs> you write about daily, I, I imagine. Um, you know, what is it about this sport hobby, whatever you want to call it, that that people are so drawn to. I do think that there is something about the simplicity of it, right? And like in a world where Mm -hmm. things feel so fast all the time, or at least like for me, I'll notice that I feel distracted and I feel, feel pulled in a million places. I feel like my time is not always my own. I feel sometimes disconnected from my from the natural world around me or disconnected from my community. And running is a really powerful and simple tool to reconnect with yourself. You get to spend time with your own thoughts and with your breath and just like listening to the sound of your two feet on the pavement or on the gravel on the trail. Um, You get to run shoulder to shoulder with people like there's actually studies that show we connect better with people when we're, you know, kind of having that space of not having to look someone directly in the eye, sometimes we'll disclose things and we'll share things that we maybe Mm -hmm. wouldn't share in another context. And you can really build rich community through that level of like one-on-one person-to-person vulnerability. And when you're running through the same landscapes day after day, you really develop sort of an intimate connection with the natural world as well. And for you, uh, after writing this book or during writing the book, did you get sick of running? I mean, it's kind of the thing that you, did you ever say, I'm going to hang it up? Definitely. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely, you know, I think there was something that I, you know, this was a really amazing learning experience for me. And I hope that no one has to go back and read something they wrote when they were 26. But, you know, I started the book when I was 26, um, almost four years ago now. And, you know, I started by writing a couple chapters sort of about like sustainability in terms of like a running career and how it fits into your life. And I am not always the best taker of my own advice (laughs) when it comes to that sort of thing. I'm very prone to burnout. And I think it was kind of like a poignant reminder that, you know, it's it's all about like emphasizing the process over perfection (laughs) for me. Um, particularly when it comes to running and just like allowing myself to acknowledge feelings of like, I just want to talk about anything besides running today. And I think that in a really healthy way, like my interest and passion for environmental stewardship and running sort of feed into each other and make each other more sustainable in the ways that they're in dialogue with each other. Like on the days that I'm so bored of talking about aerobic base building and VO2 max development, I can really lean into, you know, my, my, the climate action side of my work. Well, as uh, an Arkansan, I was wondering what, for people who live here and maybe are, are new to running, they want to try trail running more. 
what tips would you have for them? What places here would you say you got to try this out? You got to go here. Um, start with this. Yeah. So I actually started running, started trail running at Mount Kessler, which back when it was like on, you know, some guy's private property, you had to like sign a book <laughs> saying you wouldn't sue him if you fell down or hurt yourself. Northwest Arkansas right now is an incredible place to be <laughs> if you're curious about trail running. Yeah. And running generally, like you can train fairly well all year round. And I think one of the things that's amazing about trail running is that it's so much more focused on how it feels in your body than pace. I think, you know, some folks don't feel seen in the road running community because they're like, I don't know if I can run a full marathon. I don't know if that sounds fun to me. And trail running is an amazing place to sort of come into the sport because it's so much more based on like this, like on experience than like output and outcomes. So if you're someone who like doesn't really see themselves as being competitive and you just want to like have fun and move your body outside, trail running is an amazing place to start. You do not have to be a super gifted athlete. I certainly wasn't when I started. I came in as a hiker and just got curious about slowly speeding up my hiking. And I think that, yeah, again, like Northwest Arkansas is just an amazing place to sort of get in touch with that side of the sport. The trail systems there are world-class there's you know you can you can bike to the trailhead you you, like the infrastructure that exists to support trail running and running generally and in Fayetteville and Bentonville and you know the sort of adjacent areas is just is next level so I would just yeah I would just you know next time you're out on a hike or walking with your dog take a couple you know take a couple speedier steps see how it feels uh, lean into the uphills float the downhills and just have fun with it. Well, so Zoe, can you tell me just a little bit about, you know, when the book will be out and maybe how people can can get their hands on that? Yeah, so the book comes out on August 18th and you can get it wherever wherever books are sold. Awesome. And will you guys be here at any point to do any press or are you Actually, I am just... hoping to <laughs> take a Northwest Arkansas leg of the book tour. I don't have anything for sure yet, but the trail running community in Northwest Arkansas means so mm-hmm. much to me that I definitely looking for like a couple different venues to make that make that happen and also because around November in Colorado our trails shut down and that's right when things get awesome out in Arkansas so that was journalist Zoe Rome discussing her new book with co-author Tina Muir Becoming a Sustainable Runner a guide to running for life community and planet the book available in stores and online Zoe by the way a former intern at KUAF. Daniel Carruth talked to her this past August. Daniel produces his works for Ozarks at Large in the Karen Taha News Studio. Just ahead on this archive edition of Ozarks at Large, something else from August when we went to an interfaith camp in Bentonville. What that sounded like, just ahead. This is Ozarks at Large. Last week, Liz Emus directed scores of children and parents to take seats in the pews at First Christian Church in Bentonville. I think we still have some families trickling in, so we're going to give it a couple more minutes. What about my dad? And as you come in, feel free to sit where you like. But as you can see, we have This was the closing hour of the inaugural three-day Northwest Arkansas Friend Camp an interfaith camp for children in second through sixth grade. Liz is the camp's director as well as children and families ministry director at First Christian Church and Waterway in Bentonville. 
Late last month, just as the first day of the camp had concluded, Lazimus talked with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio about the camp. She says this year's inaugural friend camp in northwest Arkansas was inspired by a camp that's taken place for several years in central Arkansas. Personally, I had this idea, um, what I would call a vocation, um, a moment that I wanted to create an interfaith camp for children up here. And as I told the campers actually this morning, your adults will tell you that when you have these brilliant ideas, it's always a good idea to research whether or not this is being done anywhere else. And then learn what you can, glean what you can, and try and replicate it in your own way. And so I cold called a woman named Sophia Saeed, who's the former executive director at the Interfaith Center of Arkansas. And they had been doing something called Friendship Camp for about now, about six years. And this was a couple of years back. They did not have a camp counselor. And that's one of the things that I'm pretty good at. So I asked if I could come down, float around, you know, get some ideas. Can I replicate this elsewhere? She said, absolutely. So I started planning with them in two summers ago's camp. And this year, I was then their camp counselor and their curriculum committee chair. And in this year, now that I am doing some things personally in my own work um, at First Christian Church, I wanted to produce this camp up here. What faiths are represented in these leaders? So this is, this is uh, amazing. We usually have these faiths in Little Rock, but they don't all teach on the same day. What usually happens in Little Rock is what you call the Abrahamic faiths. Mm-hmm. So Judaism, Islam, and Christianity teach every day. It's a five-day-long camp there, and it's eight hours. And then there's always a fourth rotating faith, and that could be Unitarian Universalist, Baha'i, etc. Up here, we're having all eight faiths. And so we have, let me get this in alphabetical order, Baha'i, Buddhist, for the first time ever, Cherokee indigenous tradition, Christianity, Explorer, which are those children or families who don't currently identify with a faith. They either never have or did and fell out or just don't know, you know where they want to identify, if at all, and that's completely fine. Then we have Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, and depending on who you're talking to, sometimes they fall into a Christian category, sometimes they do not. Um, And we are open to all of that. And so we also have members of the LDS Church, which is now up in Bentonville. What sort of – this is an interesting age, um, Mm -hmm. rising second through sixth graders. So what sort of conversations or activities do you have? Sure. And that's exactly what we call them. They're conversations. We've made very clear to these families this is not – this is not a VBS <laughs> right and vacation Bible school right for those vacation who, right. Bible school and a lot of a lot of Christian families will know what that is, but there are also a lot of non-Christian families who know what that is and are nervous about that and understandably so. So we call these exploring or wonder sessions. They have conversation, but we're not here to teach. We're not here to convert, indoctrinate, or change anyone. That's not our goal. Um, So the activities range 
for each faith leader. The theme is make some noise. And the goal of that is to show these campers that all of them have noise inside of them that they want to make about something. It could be about video games. It could be about sustainability. It runs the gamut. They all have noise they want to make. And so how can you do that to not only be authentically you, but to help others in your orbit be authentically them? And so these faith leaders paired their faith, whichever it may be, with a value that's important and key to their faith. So for example, Baha'i is going to teach kindness and how they make noise about kindness in their faith. Buddhism will teach expression. Islam is going to teach compassion. Judaism is teaching something called tikkun alam, which is repair of the world. Now, I would challenge you, I would find it very difficult to pinpoint a faith or tradition that does not consider compassion, world repair, love, expression, authenticity, these things to be important. And so what happens in these classrooms is as these kids paired by stage, not by faith, so their groups are interfaith, they begin teaching each other. There's a teacher there, there are group leaders there, but the conversations that are had begin to teach each other that there's very little that's actually pulling us apart here. And there's an awful lot that can keep us together. So the activities range to your question for repair of the world in Judaism. The Northwest Arkansas Tree Project donated terracotta pots, potting soil, and sunflower seeds um, that they use to plant plants across Northwest Arkansas. They will learn what repair of the world means. They'll discuss a little bit about sustainability. They, in fact, did that today. And then they will take paint markers and they will decorate those pots to connote for them what repair looks like for the world or what needs repairing in this world. And then they'll give those out to their neighbors. Tomorrow, we will have our Buddhism class, and that's on expression. And my wonderful Buddhism teacher, Bethany Davis, purchased 65 uh, five-gallon buckets from Lowe's, and they will make their own taiko drums. So when they're feeling something, say something about it. There's no reason to hide how you feel. And there's, in some cases, no better way to express yourself than music. So I'm going to invite the campers up here to pick up their drum. And rather than teach them a song, they engage in their own rhythmic play, decorated as they see fit, for whatever they want to express. And they'll use those drums in the closing ceremony on Wednesday. It wasn't that long ago in Northwest Arkansas, you probably weren't as a young person exposed to much outside of Christianity and maybe exploring. 
Sure. You know, I mean, this area has changed a lot. And I'm just thinking about the experiences and the, the opportunities it is to be in a classroom, whether it's at this camp or in school, to learn about each other. There aren't very many. There aren't. Um, Little Rock's been doing it successfully for six years. This is the first expanded camp they've done. There's uh, hope and part of their strategic plan, if you will, to expand it to other parts of the state. Uh, But you're not wrong. Uh, And in addition to that, when Little Rock was looking at how do we do this, like what I did and I researched who's doing this well, they couldn't find Mm. someone who was doing this. They couldn't find a group who was doing this. You'll usually get a faith camp, whatever it may be, pick your faith, pick your tradition, send your kids there. Summer camps are great because we all got work to do and the kids can have fun. Or pick your social outreach camp. Maybe it's at the Parks and Rec Center. Maybe it's at the Community Center. Maybe it's being put together by a local nonprofit. Also a great option. But there is no place where social good and practicing living in solidarity also occurs and is therefore demonstrated as central to the faiths and traditions that we value at the same time in the same place. You've done a great job getting eight different major faiths together at, for leaders. How do you make sure that you've got, you know, the patronage, the, the, the young people that are also reflective of a, of a different Oh, I, I, it's, it's, it's difficult. Um, one of the things that we do do is ensure that while our region may over-index, if you will, or have a majority of a certain faith, mm-hmm. that the camp does not do that. So the first thing that I do on my forms when families sign up, uh, I'm a childist theologian. So for that, that means these people – These kids are the teachers, and rather than this parent-child hierarchy, we're all in an interconnected relationship. So I encourage families, when you sign up, ask your child what they identify as and be okay with whatever they tell you. And so part of this process, and what I love so much about this camp, is the children are practicing their agency And their families are learning how to let them practice their agency. And in that uncomfortable moment, because as parents, sometimes we want to lay down, this is what we do here, you're creating opportunity for a different kind of mutual relationship with your kid. The other thing that we do is we make sure uh, that as these forms, these applications are rolling in, You do pick what faith you identify as, and we do not permit the camp to go more than half Christian. Right. Uh, We're happy to report, though, that that was not a problem here. Um, We actually have more Explorer children than we have Christian children. It's too late for people who are just learning about this now to be part of 2023. There will be a 2024? Yes. Yes. So that's the plan. We – every day – We finish our camp, the children go home, and we all gather in one spot and we have a debrief. 
And one of those questions that I've gotten asked is, are we doing this again? And my response is, I sure am. I hope the rest of you volunteers are. Uh, and it's been a, a resolute success. Um, the odds are that this will continue around the same time during the summer because the schools have extended how late the kids are going back to school. And we want to offer something that still gives families options and isn't competing with other camps. It may expand so that instead of three-day, it's four- or five-day. Um, it may expand deeper, meaning that it's three days, but it's a full eight-hour camp. Liz Emus is the director of the Northwest Arkansas Friend Camp. The inaugural camp concluded last week. Our conversation was recorded at the Carver Center for Public Radio, but we also attended the closing ceremony as children and their camp counselors sang Circle the World with Peace, a song celebrating the word peace in several different languages. You can find out more at interfaithcenter.com or at the Facebook page for First Christian Church and Waterway, Bentonville. This is Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF in Fayetteville. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth. Contributors throughout 2023 also included you, listeners who contributed to public radio. Thank you so much. We're going to go back in the recent past again on tomorrow's edition of Ozarks at Large. Thanks so much for being with us from the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. I'm Kyle Kellums. Have a great rest of your Tuesday. Support for KUAF comes from Adventure Subaru, featuring fuel-friendly, symmetrical all-wheel drive vehicles and service in the Nelms tradition. Adventure's eco-friendly dealership is located off Interstate 49 and exit 65 at Stephen Carr Memorial Boulevard in Fayetteville. AdventureSubaru.com Fayetteville Public Television offers classes in video production plus accessibility to equipment and broadcast channels to share your videos with a viewing audience. Serving all residents of Washington and Benton County, Fayetteville Public Television can help people turn video ideas into reality. FAYpublic.tv for more information.